You are listening to the Birth Bruja podcast, radical, transformative, empowering birth work in all its nuances. Reproductive justice, racial justice, reclaiming ancestral wisdom, decolonizing the birth space. Here, my friends, we go deep. Join us each month as we chat with activists, scholars, healers, community wellness workers, birthing folk, and beyond to explore topics from their roots to their leaves. You're listening to episode 17, part two of the Supporting Survivors Who Birth series, a dive into the intersections of sexual violence and birth work, and what we can do to best be of support for survivors. As some of you may know, I'm a rape crisis peer counselor and a birth worker that specializes in supporting survivors through the birth experience. In this episode, I offer a step-by-step breakdown of some of the primary ways in which I offer support to birthing survivors. This is a sneak peek into my upcoming training through Cornerstone Doula Trainings called Supporting Survivors Who Birth. It's a four-hour online intensive with an anti-oppression-based exploration into the intersections of sexual violence and birth work. In this training, you will deepen your understanding of the workings and impact of sexual violence, Unveil the ways in which trauma can manifest for survivors through birth, pregnancy, and postpartum. Embody these practices through role-playing to feel what it can be like to provide support in the moment. And identify and strengthen your abilities to best be of support. Go to birthbruja.com to see a detailed description of what the course will cover. One final note on sound quality before we begin. I had family visiting and had to record atop our bed. As such, you'll occasionally hear sounds of a rustling wiener dog, along with whooshing sounds of her moving to cooler spots on the bed. Hashtag mom life. Hello friends. I will stick with the tradition of how we open our episodes by introducing myself, share where my people are from, and what I'm doing these days. My name is Eric Guajardo Johnson, and my mom's side of the family is from Michoacan, Leon, and Guanajuato, Mexico, and my dad's side of the family is predominantly of German descent. I was born and raised in the Midwest and spent the last about 12 and a half years living in the Bay Area of California and only recently moved back to Michigan. So we've been here for about three months and it's been a wild homecoming. It's been a wild living between two worlds of my adult self and having these echoes of my younger childhood self. And so in that transition, I have been more enthusiastically been connecting to my life's work and purpose. I am a birth worker, I am a podcast host, community organizer, rape crisis peer counselor, and birth consultant for survivors of trauma. Birth consultation for survivors of trauma is a four-part process. The first session is to build and strengthen coping skills that will most successfully support survivors during times of fear, overwhelm, anxiety, etc. 
craft a personalized plan of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual strategies that will be helpful to them from pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and beyond. Session two, three, and four are where we identify and address the most commonly triggering aspects of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. We strategize solutions, we create action plans around each trigger to avoid slash minimize stress, fear, re-traumatization, and more. Clients leave with a detailed care plan to assist in preparedness and future decision-making. These consultation services are available in person for folks that are in the Metro Detroit area, as well as via Zoom and Skype for folks that reside across the country. Additionally to providing services to birthing folk, I am passionate about supporting my fellow birth workers. Some of you may know, I am incredibly passionate about diving into the nuances of identity, the nuances of power and privilege, of oppression, wounding, and marginalization, and the ways in which these nuances inform how we engage in our birth work, how we can show up with integrity for ourselves, for our families, for our clients, for our community, and how we can, in a powerful, sustainable way, dismantle systems of oppression that are so prevalent in today's birth world. To start this conversation, it is important for us to connect to our own practices of resiliency. The truth is, if we're strung out, if we're exhausted, if our wounding is so reactivated, so open, that we can't stay present, that we're so numb and disassociated and so quick to respond in impatience or anger, then we're not showing up with the most integrity in supporting our clients. Therefore, at the beginning of every conversation of supporting others, it's important that we take note of how we care for ourselves. What are the bare bone requirements that we need to take care of ourselves? What do we need to do so that we are getting enough sleep, that we are hydrating, that we're consuming things, food, media, people, places that support and nourish us? What are we doing that connects ourselves to our power? What are we doing that connects us to community, to loved ones, to spiritual practices? Are these things that we just think about but aren't taking any action? And as we're considering the bare bones necessities of our well-being, what are the indicators that we are out of balance? And I'll candid this, friends, my gut tells me everything. If I'm super stressed, if I'm disassociating for more than two days and I haven't noticed it, what will bring my attention to that is the fact that I haven't pooped. My gut will tighten up. I'll be bloated. I'll be uncomfortable. I'll be crabby. And I interpret it as my body demanding my attention, demanding me to slow down, to drink warm things, to move my body, to bring awareness back to my literal and symbolic core of my being. There's other indicators for me which can be an increased attachment to hyperproductivity. I constantly need to be doing something. I constantly need to feel like I'm moving forward. And what it ends up being is just a form of distraction and a way for me to disassociate from my body and from my present state of being. So thinking about for yourself, the indicators of imbalance, and then having a strategic plan to respond to that imbalance. And I literally mean writing down on a piece of paper or having an action plan, whether it be to start on you know herbal supplements or to sign back up for that dance class or for that yoga class, 
for having a list of people that you could talk to that eight times out of 10, when you call them, you leave the call feeling better than when you came onto it. This care plan can also be a reminder of your commitments. So for me, that looks like reminding myself of my commitments to my partner, to my fur babies, to my spiritual practice, to my family, and to my community. Especially with the hustle of capitalism and constantly trying to improve ourselves, it's amazing how easy it is to completely get off track from the things that we know are most important to us, but yet when we look at how we are spending our energy, the reflection isn't there. So, so for me, I find having a written out document, it, it's, like a, it's like a contract that keeps me and you know that keeps me in alignment. I can look at the way I've been spending my time and my resources and I can very quickly indicate whether or not my prioritize are being reflected in my actions and then I can take the night and I can make those changes accordingly. I believe that the strength of our integrity of how we show up for others is very, very dependent on the strength of the integrity that we show up for ourselves. So therefore, before any conversation of supporting others, we need to first begin by looking at how we support ourselves. Continuing on to supporting survivors of sexual assault through the birth experience, it is important that from the get-go, we make it a practice of supporting them and connecting with their power and with practices of resilience. So for me, that means that at the beginning, I ask them to share with me practices that they have currently going on in their life that connect them to their own power, that connect them to this feeling of of confidence or peace or self-awareness and or practices that they feel contribute to their overall well-being. A lot of people respond with practices of watching Netflix after a long day at work or cuddling with their dogs. Sometimes they talk about playing with their kids or going for a family walk around the lake. Sometimes they talk about making sure that they are dancing with their friends once a month or prioritizing listening to music. As you're listening to their answers, take note of the realms of being that are being reflected. For example, a lot of folks, especially Western folks, their first answers are all things that are on the physical realm. I go for a run. I do yoga. I go hiking in the hills. I take naps. Considering the depth of the unknown that surrounds pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, and considering the multifaceted aspects of the way that trauma can weave into a birthing person's experience, it's important that we support our clients in cultivating a multifaceted plan. Something that they can do when they have high energy, something that they can do when they have meh energy, and something that they can do when they're literally just lying on their backs on their bed just trying to keep it together. Especially for folks that have been raised in the West, it's easy for folks to get fixated on really ambitious things, such as, I'm going to go to yoga three times a week, and that's how I'm going to stay on top of my well-being. Or I'm going to journal for two hours each night, and that's how I'm going to cultivate my self-awareness. Or I'm going to read 12 birthing books and attend five workshops, and that's how I'm going to prepare myself and feel confident for my birth. Those are all incredible plans. And for some people, they actually can do that. And that's amazing. But for most people, 
that's unrealistic. And what happens is it creates this expectation or this strive for perfection. And then when reality hits and life hits and pregnant bodies do their thing, folks end up feeling defeated and shameful and overwhelmed when they don't match all those things. Therefore, I like to take that time towards the first visit to create a multifaceted plan that encourages people to connect with their body in a meaningful way, whether it be to connect to their strength or to connect to their softness through stretching or gentle movement, encouraging folks to connect to their mind and to their heart. So making sure that they're not so hyper fixated on, on pro um, productivity lists, that they're actually prioritizing making time to connect to the meaning of this pregnancy, to the meaning of this transition in their lives. And last but not least, the final aspect that I like to bring to this plan is to encourage my clients to look at their care plan and figure out what are the things that they can do on their own and what are the things that invite the participation of others, whether it be the participation of their partner, of their family, of their community, or the participation of a paid professional. Practices that allow them to connect to feeling supported by others, however that means for them, however they feel safe doing it. After this plan is made, I remind folks that this is not an epic to-do list that's here to make them feel bad when they don't do everything. This is a plan for them to have in front of them, for them to start to more intentionally connect to one or many of these things so that they know that day by day, week by week, they're building a practice of connecting to the things that bring them strength, that bring them peace, that bring them healing. As birth workers, we know that there is a huge spectrum of possible experience that surrounds pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. For some folks, their pregnancy journey is one of, of feeling powerful and beautiful, and they feel like a million bucks, and they're just shining, and you're like, wow. And for other people, from the get-go, it's miserable. It's challenging. Some people start to despise their bodies and just totally dread the continuation of this pregnancy and even dread the birth, thinking that it's going to be a continuation of how the pregnancy has been. It's all normal, but it's, it's a range of possibility that could be someone's journey also could equal chance not be. When it comes to the embodiment of trauma within birthing bodies, what that means is that experience can indicate increased likelihood of the more challenging aspects of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. So again, it can be there, it can be present, it can be connected to their trauma, or it could be present and not be connected to trauma at all. It's just a manifestation. Additionally, a survivor can legitimately be a survivor and not have anything additionally challenging happening to their journey. Therefore, it's incredibly important that we normalize the full range of experiences for our clients, especially for survivors if there is difficulty surrounding something. Cycles of guilt, shame, anger, self-blame, those are shapes that are, are really familiar and common to us, and so therefore it's, they're easy rabbit holes to fall into. So as birth workers, by doing a better job of normalizing the range, it increases the chance of people not falling into those rabbit holes that will lead to insecurity, self-doubt, etc. And so from here to normalize the full range of possibilities, I'm going to list some common struggles that can happen at higher rates for survivors of sexual assault. 
For survivors of trauma, one challenging aspect that can arise is responding to body changes. For body parts such as perhaps breasts, throughout pregnancy, they change in shape, in texture, in sensation. And for folks whose experience of violence is associated with their breasts, it can be completely overwhelming. Folks can respond by feeling shame, by feeling guilty, by feeling rage, as well as by responding in complete disassociation. For some folks, they may not really feel physical sensations in that area, or they may not want to touch it, they may not want to acknowledge it, etc. So for example, if they come to you and they share that their doctor has been incessantly asking about their decision on, on breastfeeding or chest feeding, and they don't want to give a decision and they don't want to think about it, it's important to hold that place of compassion, especially for survivors that have disclosed that they are survivors and perhaps have disclosed a little bit about their story, you can respond by saying, you know, I just want to acknowledge that it, it totally makes sense right now that this is a part of the body that you haven't been comfortable engaging with. And it's important for you to remember that breastfeeding or chest feeding is not the only option available to you, that you can use formula, you can use donated milk, that there are other ways of nourishing your kid without you having to suffer. Additionally, a survivor of trauma may have difficulty or inability to engage with invasive procedures or painful procedures, such as procedures that involve needles or and or vaginal or cervical exams. If your client has expressed anxiety about getting the exams done and they know that they want to get that blood test, then what can help make them feel a little bit more safe? Maybe it's making sure that their partner's there. Or maybe they're choosing a distraction method, like maybe they listen to headphones while they're chewing gum while the nurse draws their blood. Or maybe they're reminded that things such as cervical exams are not medically necessary. Maybe it's reminding them that they always have the choice to say no, even if they're right there in the moment of getting the exam and they change their mind last minute from a yes to a no. That's totally okay. And it's important that we remind them of that. Other things that might come up, a strong gender preference for baby or caregiver. I think it's more easily understood that a survivor may not want a medical provider that is of the same, perhaps, gender of their perpetrator. So for example, for survivors whose perpetrator is a woman, it may be very important to them that their OB be a man because it allows them to feel a little more safe. Therefore, that same aspect of identity can be reflected to how they feel about baby. So for example, if their perpetrator was a man, they can feel inherently violated. They can feel very unsafe knowing that they might have a male baby within their body. Similarly, the fetus, regardless of the gender, can be perceived as a parasite or an invader. For some folks, the pregnancy process is perceived as something that's outside of their control. Therefore, if they don't want it to happen anymore and it's still happening, it can feel like an assault. This intensity, just like the last point I made, can bring someone to be so full of fear and overwhelm that they want to end their pregnancy. Depending on where the survivor is at in their pregnancy, depending where they're at geographically, and depending on the options they have available, Abortion or elective cesarean may be an option. 
I'm not going to go too far into the options that could potentially be available, but I, I will affirm, I strongly believe that our role as birth workers is not to make decisions for people and to not judge people for their decisions. Our job is to support them in finding their options and making an informed choice based on the information given. And as you're hearing this, it can feel shocking but our work is intense. The full range of, ex of human experience is intense. And so if you're someone who's specifically wanting to work with, with survivors and you want to portray yourself as someone who is capable of supporting survivors of trauma through the birth experience, if you know that you wouldn't be able to hold this space without your own judgment getting in the way, then you should not be supporting survivors. You should not. There are other people who have the capacity and you would only be doing a disservice. So maybe intense, but just an important reminder and something to consider. You know, maybe before you jump into working with survivors, you take a little more time to sit with this shadow aspect of the work, to sit with the more challenging aspects of human beings' response to violence. All right. I know this is a little intense, friends, so please take a deep breath, but I have a few points more around um, some manifestations that can come up during pregnancy. For some survivors, there can be a resurgence or a reoccurrence of, of traumatic memories. It can show up as nightmares. It can show up as these thoughts that come to your mind when you have downtime, you know, when you're trying to sleep or when you're waking up or when you're driving the car. It could look like something that's actually more intrusive thought. For example, you might be in the middle of your workday and then all of a sudden this memory just comes and it's just barreling itself in the forefront of your mind. Those are things that can happen. And if it does happen, it's important to remind your clients that if it reaches to the point where they're suffering, actively suffering, like they're getting overwhelmed, and it, if it reaches to the point where it's intrusive thoughts, where like they can't turn it off at all and it's impeding on their quality of life, that is a sign of reaching out for outside support, meaning seeking therapy, counseling, ceremony, etc. And the next two points that I would make is something that can be present throughout the whole experience, not just pregnancy, but through birth and postpartum, which is that survivors of trauma can have this really deep fear of not being a good parent. Some folks fear that they are too wounded to be a good parent or that they won't know how to protect their kid because they weren't protected. And so they don't know how, they've never been taught. Sometimes parents fear that their kid is going to be violated and that their kid is going to be exposed to violence and there's nothing they can do about it. And so that sense of lack of control can just completely consume someone. Sometimes parents fear that they will harm their child. Sometimes they get really overwhelmed and anxious thinking about how they're gonna change diapers, how they're gonna bathe their baby, fearing that they're not gonna know what's appropriate or inappropriate. And so especially for survivors of childhood sexual abuse, this totally makes sense. And again, it's important for folks to know that it's, it's normal. And just because it's normal, it doesn't mean that they need to suffer this alone. And that they can, especially if it's sinking in in pregnancy, they can work with a professional, with a therapist, with a counselor, with a curandero, etc. They can work with someone who's trained and experienced around addressing some of these fears and seeing if they can be eased. Moving on to some of the common manifestations that can come up in the labor and birth experience. For some survivors, there is an incredible fear of pain, especially if there was pain present in their experience of violence. 
As birth workers, I think it's important that we talk about pain with all of our clients, whether they identify as survivors or not, but especially survivors, it's important that we have this conversation before labor and birth. You know, asking them to dive into their associations with pain. What are examples of times where you feel like you've dealt with pain in a way that made you feel proud of yourself? Or what's an example of a way that you felt pain that was really challenging and overwhelming? Maybe they'll refer to their, to their experience of violence, maybe not. But it's just a way for them to start to engage with their own association with pain. And then from there, encouraging them to consider that unlike all other forms of pain, what is experienced in the birth process, instead of it being an indication of something wrong, it's actually an indication of something good, of something right, of something healthy, right? The challenging sensations that come with contractions or surges is an indication that their baby is coming, that their body is doing exactly what it knows how to do, that this journey of pregnancy is almost to an end and that they're about to enter this next realm of, of parenthood. And it's also important for us to talk about pain in an emotional sense, in a mental sense, and then again, if it's in your scope, a spiritual sense, as well as talking about it in a physiological sense. So for example, the pain tension cycle, which I fear I'm misspeaking right now, but if you Google it, it'll it'll come up. <laughs> the right words will come up. Basically, it's the understanding of how when the body's in pain, it tenses, it contracts, and how when we contract and we're tense, how we have heightened experiences of pain. So I, I do talk about that with my clients, but I'm really conscious of them not feeling like if they experience pain, then it's their fault, then they didn't do a good job. So what I do is I explain this connection and then use it to affirm why it's important that they work on their self-care practices now so that when they emerge from pregnancy into labor, that their body is as soft and connected to their power and relaxed as possible. On a similar note, a survivor may come into the labor experience, into the pregnancy experience, having a huge fear of death. It's really normal for any birthing person to have this fear, but especially for survivors, knowing that they may have endured such an intense physical violent experience that made them wonder if they were going to die. It makes sense that that association with intense physical pain and discomfort would be brought into the birth room. So for all of my intake forms, I ask folks to share with me some of the fears and anxieties that they have around pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. And so in that spot, many people do share that they are afraid of dying, but sometimes if I notice that they didn't really flesh out that question very thoroughly... I will bring it up when I see them in person and then I'll kind of like smoothly weave it in being like, yeah, so, you know, I see you answered this question in this way. And I just want to ask if there's anything else that comes to mind. You know, it's really common for people to fear pain, to fear tearing or to fear dying. Again, in this way, I try to normalize the full range of experience so that if someone does have that fear and they feel silly saying it out loud, I'm giving them another chance to verbalize it and to give us an opportunity to explore. And on the note of death and dying, if we're uncomfortable about it and you kind of feel like you wouldn't know what to say if your client revealed that they're afraid of death, that is a good indicator that you should do some research. 
that you should reach out to other birth doulas. And actually, going a little off topic here, but starting in November, birth worker Brooke Patmore and I are co-hosting a birth work mentorship circle. And included in the agenda for the next year, we'll be talking about death, bereavement, stillbirth, and miscarriage. So stay tuned for that. All right, coming back to this experience, let's take another deep breath. I know this is so intense. <sighs> okay, so continuing on, in the birth room, there may be a huge response of terror or overwhelm to things that you guys did not discuss prior to. Examples could be things such as the suddenly having fear of seeing their own blood, of seeing the amniotic fluids, of smelling the fluids or smelling feces or urine. They could fear seeing blood on the baby. They could fear having the lights off, or they could fear being left alone in the bathroom with the door closed. It's important to note that all of the aforementioned things could have been present in their experience of violence. So if there is a huge fear response in the birth room, especially to something that you weren't prepared or don't understand why, note that it's actually not important for you to understand why. You don't need to know why in order to be helpful. In response to this scenario as birth workers, what we could do is do our best to keep the fluids off the ground, keep the fluids away from their line of sight. Perhaps you support in changing Chuck's pad more regularly so that they don't have to see the fluids there. Perhaps you bring essential oils with them to the bathroom so that they don't have to smell their scent of urine or feces. Basically, you do what you can to minimize the chances of interaction. Another thing that can happen is that you could have a birthing client who in the, all the prenatal visits, they're just really engaged and really dedicated to making informed choices. And they perhaps they want to birth unmedicated and they want to do things as, as natural as they can. And then what you might find is that as birth intensifies, they start disassociating hardcore and they start becoming ambivalent. Before, they were so passionate about trying to birth unmedicated and to move their body and to try all these positions, and yet suddenly you find that they don't care whether or not they have an epidural, that they don't care whether or not they have the C-section, and they're just, and suddenly they're just down to do whatever their primary provider says, even if it's suddenly throwing in Pitocin, when you know in your practice that there are other alternatives outside of Pitocin. In that moment, it is possible for some birth workers to feel really frustrated and disappointed and wanting to play hardball with the client. As my good friend, Brooke Patmore, who I just mentioned, has told me for years now, it's not our birth. And in this situation, friend, it's not your body, it's not your birth. And so despite all the work you may have done with them, it's important for you to support where they're at in the moment. So you could ask them, right? You could be like, hey, I just want to remind you that on the birth, on your birth preferences, you indicated that you wanted to try to avoid Pitocin. Is that something that you still feel strong? Is that something you still want to avoid? Or are you saying right now that you'd rather go ahead with Pitocin? It's taking a moment to remind them of their intentions before, but giving them the chance in a non-judgmental way of changing their mind. Because as I mentioned a little while back, especially for survivors, it's so easy to fall back into the spiral of shame and guilt. And the last thing we'd want 
is for the survivor to feel we, their support person, feel like they screwed up. On the flip side of passivity and ambivalence, it is possible that the survivor may respond with aggression towards medical providers, with not wanting to cooperate with procedures, not wanting to change positions, not wanting to be coached while pushing. And my stance on that is you're there to protect their wishes. So there's a nurse that is insisting that they get an IV hooked up to them and your birthing person is like loudly, aggressively saying no, then what do you do? You affirm to the nurse that your client has made a decision. Your client has already made the decision to not have an IV and that that's the final answer. Additionally, if you notice that your client is having that response, that means that they don't feel safe. So pay attention to the things that might contribute to your client feeling safer. So maybe making sure if they're birthing in a hospital, for example, because birthing in hospitals would, be the, would lead to greater possibilities of birthing people feeling unsafe. So maybe making sure that the door is closed, that that drape around the door is closed, um, checking in to see if they'd feel more comfortable having their body covered or wearing one of those hospital panties with a pad, asking, perhaps putting a sign on the door, asking or insisting that um, medical staffs knock and wait to have someone open the door for them to come in. So just coming up with ways to build the survivors, again, that survivor's sense of safety and control over their space. Moving on to our final part of this presentation, the postpartum period. Best case scenarios, there'd be, there'd be a lot of joy and connection with all the struggle and upheaval of, of a new being, of new routines, new sensations, etc. In general, I feel like emphasis of postpartum care is incredibly lacking in mainstream culture and mainstream practices of birth work. I think part of the struggle of mainstream birth worker culture is that it comes from a place of privilege. And so I've literally had folks tell me, well, it's not important for me to talk that much more about postpartum because that's why they'll just hire a postpartum doula. And it's like, I don't know too many people who can actually afford a birth doula and a postpartum doula. And even with all that paid support, folks are still so often left hanging and overwhelmed. So drawing back, especially for survivors of trauma, there has to be solid support around postpartum preparation. And so logistically, what that can look like for birth workers is that we include postpartum conversation in the second prenatal visit, or if the second prenatal visit, which in my experience it often is, if it's really dominated with conversation around birth, logistics, especially medical practices and so forth, then sometimes it can feel like, like we have very little time left to talk about postpartum. So if you're in a situation where you're concerned about not having enough space to talk about postpartum prep, then I encourage you to consider scheduling another prenatal visit, especially if someone has had a lot of embodiment of trauma already manifesting in their pregnancy. I would encourage you to have that in-person visit just because you can get that much more information looking at their body language and sharing their energy and their space. And then another option could be scheduling an extensive phone call or video call with them to go over this topic. There are going to be folks that are going to be so overwhelmed about preparing for birth that they're not going to want to talk postpartum. And that's okay because we meet survivors where they're at, right? That's how we best serve them. So in those situations, what I do 
is I prepare an email that's a pretty extensive, comprehensive dive into preparing for postpartum. So I give them some resources for sure. Therapists that I know in the area that that specifically are trained to support survivors of sexual assault and or folks going through postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, giving them well-vetted resources as well as local organizations, giving them resources to breastfeeding support groups, to birthing people groups, you know, mommy groups, but I'm, I'm blinking right now on, on what would be understandable, but also more gender inclusive, as well as giving them bullet points of things to look out for right, which is what we're going to go through a little bit more. I give a little a little brief description around baby blues and normalizing that experience, but also kind of giving a context of if it, you know, if you're still feeling like this after this amount of time, that might be a sign that you consider reaching out for additional support. And I also include in that email a copy of their resiliency practices that we discussed in our first visit. So even if they're not ready to talk about this stuff right now, when they're in the postpartum period, if they need that support, it's literally right there on a document in their email. Also, similarly, if they're not in a place to be able to talk about postpartum, you better believe I'm diligent about following up and staying connected a little bit more than I would, shall we say, for a a birthing person who's not a survivor. So bringing the focus back to a scenario where we're working with a survivor who is wanting and able to talk about postpartum prep, the first thing that I do is I give some context to the experience. I talk about how postpartum is a time of great transition. I acknowledge the transitions within the physical body. I acknowledge the transitions in the daily life, the routine. And for me personally, because this is just how because this is the realm of my work, I talk about mental, emotional, and spiritual shifts as well. And so from that place of getting con- giving context to this realm, I then open with the question, what do you want for your postpartum period? What do you envision as an ideal scenario? What plans do you have in place to support this vision And what remains to be done? Do you have any concerns about the postpartum time? I am a fan of actually giving these questions ahead of time and then giving this context in the visit, right, or over the phone, and then asking these questions again, um, just because it gives them a little more, you know, grounding to think about this and unpack further. There'll be a lot of conversation around like family dynamics with in-laws or access to resources, needing support, getting baby supplies or nourishing food, etc. And then from there is where I talk about normalizing. I normalize the full range of experience about how it's possible that they're going to have their baby and fall in love with them immediately. And it's possible that they're going to heal relatively quickly and that breastfeeding or chest feeding may be an enjoyable experience, etc. And I also normalize that it could take some time to connect with baby, that it could take some time to feel positive emotions around holding your baby or breastfeeding, that it's possible that they may hate breastfeeding. And if they get to a point where they notice that their body is responding violently to say no, 
that if they notice that they're suffering around the experience of breastfeeding, I normalize that that might be a good sign to consider other options, such as donated breast milk or using formula. I continue on to give a basic understanding of baby blues. I normalize baby blues of what it can look like around how it can typically look like uh, an oversensitivity, like they're living their normal life, but yet they're like extra sensitive. So maybe they're normally really into wiener dogs, but yet somehow seeing wiener dogs just makes them sob out of, out of emotion for how beautiful they are. You know, or maybe they normally struggle with with self-confidence, but man, is it just really exacerbated here. Baby blues can also look like issues eating, meaning like they don't have an appetite or they have an insatiable appetite. It can have issues with sleeping. They can have low energy. Their exhaustion can be out of control. They can be irritable. They can be confused, foggy brain you know, inability to kind of hang on to, to what they were doing in this moment, looking into a room and not remembering why they were there. Um, they can also have heightened states of fear, of anxiety, and their pain can be heightened as well, their physical pain. So what I mentioned is actually within the normal realm of baby blues if it lasts around two weeks. And the statistic that I've read is that it's 80% of all new birthing folk experience what is called baby blues. So it's when these sensations last longer than two weeks that it might be an indication of something a little more a little more deeply rooted. So a lot of Western folks call this next piece postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. That's when the baby blues get worse. So it can get worse earlier than two weeks or just may last longer than two weeks. And this is something that I want to pause and just acknowledge is that it depends on the community you work with on whether or not I would suggest you actually using the terms postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. Especially within certain communities of color, there's a lot of stigma around mental illness, and I would not want to turn someone off by using terminology that would just shut them down versus just describing something clearly and without getting caught up in, in the terminology, okay? Continuing with this thread, I give folks some clear examples on when it might be a good time to reach out for support. So talking about intrusive thoughts around their past trauma or intrusive thoughts around hurting themselves or hurting baby. Again, this doesn't mean that they want to hurt themselves or they want to hurt baby, but if they can't stop thinking about the action of if they were to drop their baby down the stairs or if they can't stop thinking about the action of them walking of themselves walking in front of a car, that's a sign that they should reach out for support. And then as we also talked about in the first episode, there are a few other symptoms too, but the bottom line is that if they're suffering if their quality of life is being interrupted, then reach out for support. It can look like getting on medication. It can look like just attending support groups or just attending groups of birthing people. It could also look like going to therapy, going to a drumming circle, going to a sweat lodge after the appropriate amount of time. It can look like doing, you know, getting a spiritual cleansing, Olympia. There's so many ways that support can manifest. So for me, one of the ways in which I have embodied a decolonial approach to my work is I do my best to normalize the full range of what support looks like. Because there's a lot of folks that think that the only quote-unquote legit support system comes from going to a therapist or comes from going and receiving medication. 
So I just wanted to throw that note in there as another reason why it, it might be worth your while and it might be contributing to your ethics to do a little research around quote-unquote alternative forms of medicine so that you can talk about it in a comfortable way, not from a place of an expert, but just from a comfortable way to folks, you know, being able to describe why Chinese medicine, you know, acupuncture, for example, might be helpful for them. So again, envisioning that this postpartum meeting is happening in person or on the phone with someone, I always, always close that time together, reconnecting to their practices of resilience, their practices of self-care. So I literally pull up the list that we made in the first visit and I ask them how they feel about it. If there's any areas that they would like to revisit, if they have anything they'd like to add, or if they can identify anything specific from that list that would be really crucial to their postpartum wellness, you know, to their postpartum journey. And so what I've noticed is that a lot of times the lists that we make in the first visit are a list of items that are really helpful, that were really helpful to them before pregnancy and even during pregnancy. But then in the translation from pregnancy to postpartum, especially early postpartum, there can suddenly be a deficit. So for example, if your primary mechanisms of self-care are like running and yoga, those aren't going to be really accessible for your early postpartum period. So what are some alternatives? One response could be maybe they invest in getting a massage, whether it be by a professional or someone that they love. Maybe they invest in prioritizing baths or long showers. The reason I suggested these two examples is because these are two ways in which they can come back to their body. You know, a lot of folks that choose running and dancing and yoga, those are people that are more connected to their embodiment and to their physicality. So therefore, it's helpful for us to consider ways in which they can, again, connect with that embodiment, but do it in a way that is still supportive of their early postpartum journey. And last but not least, I also end this visit by sending a follow-up email. So just as we just as I gave in the previous example about just putting everything in an email so that if slash when in that postpartum period when they're feeling really overwhelmed and totally out of it, they know that they have at least one email that has a comprehensive breakdown of what they know or what they think might be helpful to them. So that, my friends, is my general approach to supporting survivors. It's not a formula. It's a working structure. And I guarantee I'm probably going to listen to this podcast as I edit it and just be like, why did I say it like that? Or why didn't I say this? It's an ongoing thing. And in these closing moments, I just would like to encourage you to not get caught up in idealism. We're not their saviors. We're not going to fix them. That's not our role. That's inappropriate. <laughs> and with that being said, we have incredible potential as birth workers to make a huge difference in supporting someone connecting to their power and their resiliency through the birth process. We don't have to be experts of trauma. That's not our scope, right? If anything, actually, it's a good reminder, especially around supporting survivors, to be aware of your scope of practice and not try to insert yourself as an expert in any way. And just to remember that us showing up to this work with as much integrity as we can, that's enough. And that's a huge deal. In closing, I would like to extend my deepest gratitude to you listeners 
to my family, to my partner, Sean, to my mom, Yolanda, to my friends, my colleagues, my chosen family. I want to thank all of you who have been incredibly supportive of my journey into birth work and anti-violence work. In short, I couldn't do this without you. So thank you for the support y'all have given me with this podcast, with the offerings that I've shared so far online, with the with the Birth Bruja Book Club and the upcoming mentorship circle and this training coming up in December on supporting survivors. It's both really exciting and incredibly vulnerable to be offering all these things. And so I just appreciate you continuing to see me. The music you heard in today's show is entitled Healer by Sampa the Great. Deep gratitude to my wiener dog, Beatty, who sat for this multi-hour adventure of recording this episode, and to We Rise Cultural Productions for assistance in production. Go to birthbruja.com to learn about upcoming trainings, mentorship circles, and more. Follow me on social media at birthbruja to continue the conversation. your host, Eri Guajardo-Johnson. The Birth Bruja podcast is produced by Catherine Petru of We Rise. Be sure to check out show notes for links and resources. Follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes to help us expand the impact of this work. Until next time, my friends, thank you for all the ways you show up in this world. Blessings and gratitude. <laughs>